Hi loves, welcome back to Raw Vegan Lens. I'm your host, Sherry Michelle. Let's go. Well, there's another book that I'd really like to read, and you guys seem to be enjoying these. <clears throat> this is also by Victoria Botenko, who I adore. I've met her a couple of times, and out of respect for her, I, I don't want to um, read, I mean, I do want to read the entire book, but out of respect for Victoria, a fellow author, um, I, I would be <clears throat> I would be a little upset, I think, if someone was reading my books, um, just like giving away the content. Um, but then then again, if it was really helping people, I'd be okay. I haven't made very much off of my books at all. I really don't think I've made even a thousand dollars, and that's since I started publishing in 2012 with the first one, Swallowtail. Um, the second one was in 2014. That was Choke Cherry. The third one was in um, 2018, I believe. It was called They Can Never Know. They're all novels. They're unrelated. It's not a series. I wish they had been series. Someone online said, uh, I think several people, definitely more than one, said these should have all been trilogies. And then when I saw that, I was like, oh, they're right. Like, I could have done that. But when you finish a book, I don't know, for me at the time, I was younger, I thought, um, let's do something totally different. <laughs> you know, that's me. I'm, you know, I love being nomadic. I love traveling. I love new things, different things. Um, so definitely felt that way after Swallowtail because I'd spent over six years writing that first book. That first book, it's like your greatest hits album. Well, no, it's not your greatest hits album. It's. It's everything you've learned in life up to that point. It's it's like an artist's first album where everything after that is good. You like it, but it's not quite like their first one where they were like unproduced and, you know, raw with creativity and no one was influencing them on what to do and how to do it really. Um, <clears throat> so... I did write a book after that third one that's not a novel, and it's about my dad, and it's called Angel Dad, um, and that was probably in 2019, I think. So, <clears throat> excuse me, if I found out that someone was reading my books on a podcast, at this point, yeah, I think initially it'd be like, oh, they didn't even ask me, you know, or they could have emailed me or something. But then again, like, if they were helping people, I I try to remember everything happens for us and not to us. And I know that Swallowtail, the first book, helped a lot of people. That book kind of has a life of its own. Um, I've considered reading it on, on this podcast. Um, I might still do that. Um, the audiobook is available. Um, through Amazon, as well as the ebook and the paperback. But I mean, gosh, I published that in 2012. And it didn't have the run that it should have, I felt like I never had the budget for marketing that I needed to give those books a proper, a proper run a proper life. <clears throat> but you never know, when one's going to take off, um, like a pony breaking out of a pasture and just run like the wind. Um, that would be fun, but 
that's not why I wrote them. I really did want to make a living as an author. Um, and maybe I still will someday. I'm sorry. Sometimes a sidetrack, a, a, a tangent, a, a detour is important. Um, just talking through this now with you. I've been thinking lately about this, um, this psychic, I guess is what you would call her. She's not a medium exactly. Um, she's been around for a long time. Her name is America Martinez and she's here in Chicago. My partner's dad went to her. My partner went to her. This was like over long periods of time in between, like maybe 15, 20 years apart. And then my partner gave me a gift certificate to go see her. So I saw her probably like five years ago. I was still writing. Um, seriously, I was in a writer's group. I wrote each of my books in a different writer's group. Um, I highly recommend that because it keeps you accountable. And if you can't find a writer's group on Meetup or, or somewhere else, um, make one. If you build it, they will come. That's from an Iowan. I know that that's from Field of Dreams, but it's true. And it's if you build it, he will come technically. But if you build a writer's group, if you start... They will show up. It'll attract the people that you need in your life for that book or those books. So when I saw America Martinez, she was adamant that I keep writing. And I was at a point where I was very frustrated. I had self-published everything, which is awesome because you have total creative control. I've seen some really bad covers uh, (laughs) for people that had... uh, great publishing houses. Um, I didn't want that, but there was a time when I wanted an agent and I I had one for a while, but not the right agent for me. Um, there was a time when I wanted a big publishing house and then I realized like, no, I think I want to just go ahead and do this. And I had someone, um, Susan K. Quinn show me how she did it. Um, first through a book and then in person, she was sweet enough to just meet me at a Starbucks and tell me this is how I market them. She's basically printing money at this point because she does series. And that's not what I did. I did standalone books. But I still have that knowledge. I could still do it. She's really got a great system. And she's literally a former rocket scientist. Her husband is currently a rocket scientist. <laughs> so... <clears throat> I was frustrated because I wasn't selling very many books and I didn't have the budget. I didn't have the income to put into marketing like I wanted to. Um, And that was at that point on my third book, I believe, was out. Anyway, she was adamant that I keep writing. And then on the way out the door, she was like insistent. Um, And then I look at like, I'm doing TikTok shop right now. And so I said to Gabe last night, I think I was like, America Martinez never said anything about TikTok shop. It didn't exist at the time. She, but she didn't say anything about sales. She didn't say anything about online sales or social media. And that's very different than podcasting. And it feels like it's sucking the life out of me. It's like I'm pouring all this um, creativity and energy and time into it and um for one sale (laughs) 
and I've been at it a couple of weeks. I know that's not very long, but I just keep, my brain keeps going back to America Martinez was so insistent that I keep writing. And when you look at your gifts, I can see that my writing is a gift. And am I like, you know, phenomenally gifted? No. Um, like I said, the Swallowtail, that first book had a life of its own, still kind of does, um, because everyone's lost someone and everyone's wondered, is that light bulb burning out or is that grandma? That's Gabe's alarm going off. Sorry. It's funny that it's coming off now though. Is that Gabe's alarm or is that grandma or my sister or my niece, Devin? No, it's his alarm. But anyway, I know in my heart that I should start writing again. That that is a gift. Um, I was reading uh, the author of The Other Swallowtail last night. I hadn't looked at his book in um, years. We connected um, in the beginning because we published at the same time, same title, Um, and I thought, oh, I'd better read his book in case like someone I know or someone I don't know orders the wrong one by mistake. Like I was thinking of my great aunt, which she doesn't even, she's not even online, but, um, it's, uh, erotica and it's kind of like psychological erotica. I always thought he was probably a mental health care provider, like a, um, He's not a provider, but he's probably a therapist, I'm guessing. Um, His work is very uh, psychological and beautifully written. I'm not into erotica, but I love the way he writes. Um, It's it's beautiful. (laughs) I wish he wrote other things. I mean, I'm not anti-erotica, but it's just like not what I gravitate to. I wish he would just write a story about a family. Um, But... Yeah, I can't see myself reading his body of work, but um, I like his writing style. It's it's very intellectual. It's very beautiful. It's very, um, almost when I say delicate, he takes his time, but he also has beautiful attention to detail. Anyway, his name's KT McCall. Well, no, that was, I'm so sorry. That, what I found out last night is that those aren't available anymore, the, his original pen name. So now it is something Mackenzie. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, Mackenzie might be K, capital K, capital T, and then M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. I think that's right. <clears throat> My apologies. I didn't think I'd be talking about that or I would have looked it up again. Anyway, uh, he kept writing and he did like 59 titles in those two years. I don't know how we were communicating. If it was through email, I can't find his email in there anywhere. I can't find him in messenger. I don't know how we were talking at some point, but he was thrilled that I thought, he was a woman because subconsciously I was like KT, Katie. And, 
he's a guy and he just writes beautifully. And anyway, so looking at his work last night, it's like, oh, look at what happens when you just keep going. I would be uh, at a different level with my writing had I just kept going. But people do love what I write. So um, that's, it's encouraging. It was sobering, I guess, to look and see like his body of work. I don't know what he is doing now, if he's still around. Someone who writes 59 volumes in two years and then nothing, I kind of think something happened to him. I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. But anyway, that's my story as an author. So I'm still, I'm, I'm mulling this over a lot more again and um, thinking that's probably what I should be doing instead of TikTok shop and that that experience of having one sale in two weeks, which I'm really good at sales, um, that that's happening for me, not to me, so that it's steering me in the direction of writing again. And so, yeah, if someone was reading my books um, and just giving away all the content, I would assume that was happening for me if I really sat down and thought about it and not to me that they were not hurting me in any way, that it was being orchestrated by the universe. And so, Victoria Batenko, if you're listening, I doubt you are, but if you are, or someone who knows you is, know that I'm not doing this with any ill intent, and I will not give away all your content. I would love to read this book in its entirety. It's called Green for Life, and I need to reread it, and um, I know that it's going to help a lot of people um, by me reading um, a lot of it. I think maybe I'll leave out the most of the testimonials at the end, even though I know they're really good. I will leave out all the recipes. And I just encourage you to get it. Get anything that Victoria Patenko writes because she researches her ass off. And she's a former nurse. She's lived this life. As far as I know, she's still living this raw life. Um, this is an independent publisher award finalist book. Uh, she's put her all into it, and I would really prefer to help her sell more of these books. Um, I, I want to support her, not take away from all of her hard work. So, so mixed feelings about that. Sorry, my alarm is going off now on my phone and it is going to interrupt the recording from time to time, um, but then it picks right up again. So my apologies if a word is missing. I will try to catch that and repeat myself. So let's just read a little bit from this today and we'll see how it goes. And of course, if someone reaches out to me um, you can reach me at, um, it's best through Gmail, sherry.michelle at gmail.com, S-H-E-R-I dot M-E-S-H-A-L at gmail.com, um, and tells me, stop, you're, you're, you're stealing from Victoria Patenko. <laughs> I, I will stop. Um, but that is certainly not my intent. Um, I'm so, so grateful for all of her hard work, all of her sacrifices, the life that she has chosen to live, um, research, all the time and energy that she put into writing these books and sharing this information. Uh, I just think she's incredible. 
All right. <clears throat> Love you, Victoria. Dedication. I dedicate this book to Dr. Ann Wigmore and others who dare to think for themselves. This is Green for Life. And it was published in 2005. Oh, and there is a little disclaimer there that caught my eye. Oh, not intended as a medical device. Uh, device. <laughs> I think it is a medical device. Uh, it's not intended as medical advice. Uh, Victoria Botenko does not recommend cooked foods or standard medical practices. Um, the authors, publishers, and or distributors will not assume responsibility for any adverse consequences resulting from adopting the lifestyle described herein. This book has been translated into the following languages, and this is back in 2005, so I bet it's much, much more, but at the time it was Russian, German, Portuguese, French, Chinese, and Hungarian. Beautiful. And they do have a website, uh, rawfamily.com, and it's Raw Family Publishing. So they're self-publishers, too. <clears throat> Author's note. Dear reader, I'm delighted to share this book with you. In the following chapters, I disclose many astonishing facts about greens and explain why they are the most essential part of human nutrition. Ever since I realized the key to radiant health was under my very nose, I began to read every book on greens I could get my hands on. Initially, I only wanted to improve the classic raw food diet. Surprisingly, in the process of my research, I found that adding blended greens to anyone's diet makes such a profound health improvement that it may even surpass the benefits of eating a typical all raw diet with a relatively small amount of greens. In addition, drinking smoothies is by far more doable than switching. I'm sorry, my dog is snoring. Oh, jeepers. In addition, drinking smoothies is by far more doable than switching at once to an all-raw diet. At the same time, I've discovered that people who incorporate blended greens into their daily meals naturally begin to eat more live foods. Blended green smoothies are a simple and delicious way of accessing the healing properties of greens. Whether you eat raw food, vegan, vegetarian, or mainstream American diet, regularly drinking green smoothies can significantly improve your health. This miraculous drink is available to every person in every country. Join me in discovering why greens are the perfect human food. I hope this information is as refreshing for you as it has been for me. Victoria Botenko. Acknowledgements. Um, we'll leave this out. She acknowledges her husband, uh, Igor. I don't know if it's Igor or Igor. I think it's Igor. Um to my beloved husband, Igor, for always being extraordinarily dependable in all my endeavors, for listening and discussing countless new concepts with me, and for his endless passion for truth. To my daughter, Valia, for her graceful patience and dedication in clarifying the wording of this book. To my son, Sergei, for his enthusiastic support and eloquent critiques. To my son, Stefan, for his valuable insights and inspiring phone calls. And she goes on to thank... Um, Oh, I might as well read the rest. To Dr. Paul Fieber and his wife, Susie, for their active help in organizing and conducting the Roseburg study. To all the participants of the Roseburg study for their time and commitment. To Vanessa Nowitzki for her quick fingers, impeccable grammar, and sweet sense of humor. To Laura Hamilton, Shauna Huggins, and Kendall Olson-Cassidy for the long hours they spent editing this manuscript. To Elizabeth Bechtold, Phyllis Lynn, Oftek Onbar, Graham W. Boys, Penny Budinsky, Daniel and Judy Sapon-Borson for their generous financial support of my research and the publishing of this book. 
To all those who sent me their enthusiastic endorsements, thank you. May you all benefit from drinking green smoothies. <clears throat> Chapter 1. Dare to Observe. Doubt is the father of invention. Galileo Galilei. Observation continues the foundation of every science. Oh, sorry. Observation constitutes the foundation of every science. You and I, like everyone on this planet, have the right to make observations and draw our own conclusions, whether we are scientists or not. Our personal experimentation helps us stay in charge of our lives. No scientific data can substitute for our own experience. When a child is told not to touch the fire, this warning doesn't mean much until he or she actually tries touching the flames and gets hurt. Only through observation can we learn to connect consequences with causes, to become aware of what to expect. For example, if we overeat late at night, we should not expect to feel fresh in the morning. The advantage of being aware of what is going to happen enables us to act deliberately in our everyday lives and to achieve the goals we desire through conscious actions, instead of constantly and blindly following the advice of somebody who knows better. And that's in quotes. I was raised in the Soviet Union where everyone was severely controlled by the government structures. Since early childhood, I was given firm instructions about what I was supposed to do, think, and even say. I was afraid to try anything new. However, I was very lucky to meet many incredible people in my life from whom I learned to dare to try everything I wanted. I absolutely have to tell you about Alexander Suvorov, whom I met several times and who became my hero and inspiration for many years. Alexander became totally blind and deaf when he was three years old. Nevertheless, he was so eager to live his life to the fullest that he learned to speak and to understand what other people were saying by holding their hands. He graduated from high school with an excellent diploma, then graduated as PhD from Moscow University, wrote a number of brilliant scientific articles about helping blind and deaf children, published several books, and created a 40-minute documentary about his perception of life. This film gathered huge crowds in Moscow in the 70s. People were deeply impressed by Alexander's sincerity and passion. I remember that after the movie was over, nobody left the theater for a long time. We just sat there bewildered, sobbing, and ashamed of our own cowardly lives and stupid fears. Alexander Suvorov, living his life in physical darkness and constant silence, had a dream to travel to other countries. So he learned two foreign languages and traveled to several countries on his own. When people asked him why he went, he replied that he wanted to see the world for himself. <clears throat> When I meet incredible human beings like Alexander or read about people who dare to see for themselves, I begin to want to explore life around me more completely and to know how far my limits can stretch. As we live our lives trying new things and searching for true answers, we gain plenty of our own experiences. Our knowledge becomes familiar and practical. We feel rather confident in any life circumstance, particularly when we need to make urgent decisions. Contrary to that, when all we have is a compilation of someone else's instructions, the best we can do is hope and pray that the authors of such instructions were efficient in acquiring their knowledge and honest in their intentions. In other words, we hope that someone else cares for us more than we care for ourselves. When we, when we let others observe and reason for us, in a sense, we consciously choose to stay blind and deaf. We begin we become compelled to follow someone else's instructions 
one after another and perform actions which do not make much sense to us. We submit to others' authority. We give our power away. To observe is our birthright. If we utilize our ability to observe, we can free ourselves from the labyrinth of confusions. I believe that our own conscious observations are a thousand times more important than any rigid scientific claim. Why have so many books on nutrition been published lately? Obviously, there's a big question from the public about health that has not been satisfied by the scientific wing of our world community. Most of us are totally cut off from researchers, and at the same time, scientists are disconnected from ordinary people. I wonder why this has happened since the original goal of science is human well-being. Most results of pure science are unavailable and unaffordable for common people. For example, in order to obtain a two or three page report from nearly all medical studies, I had to pay a lot of money, sometimes hundreds of dollars for each of them. The average research paper is written in complex scientific terms, which makes it incomprehensible to people who don't belong to this particular branch of science. I've observed that the branches of science are increasing in number and the language they use continually multiplies in terms. Throughout my life, I've spoken to dozens of different scientists in different parts of the world, and I've never met one scientist who is able to understand and explain studies from all the branches at the same time. In fact, the more scientists claim to know about one subject, the more they tend to say, mm, that's not my field, about the others. This tendency suggests that science is moving beyond the understanding of the average human beings towards science for the sake of science. While the public wants to know the newest achievements, the scientific world becomes less and less available for their burning inquiries. The informational vacuum begins to grow, especially in the field of health and nutrition. To substitute for this missing, yet so needed information, the public begins to make its own science. It may not be completely accurate, but it is understandable to the majority of people. Hence, we witness hundreds, if not thousands of books on nutrition written by average people who undertake different research studies, sometimes without the necessary background. Being desperate for answers to their questions, people absorb this abundance of information and often get more confused. I notice that many people trust the written word more than the spoken word. Due to the lack of people's own observations and a tendency to take whole concepts as if they were set in stone, health seekers embrace a certain concept, often depending on which book they have read first. As multitudes of nutritional books are generated, they begin to contradict one another. As a result, it is possible to encounter hundreds of people today with completely different suggestions of what to eat, all with hundreds of different reasons that cancel out each other. When I started to do research about greens, I instantly and hopelessly sank into an ocean of information. In my situation, I had to find the true answer or die. I felt responsible not only for my husband and my children whom I dragged onto the raw food diet with me, but all those thousands of people in the world that I inspired to adopt an all raw diet. Finally, I decided to put everything aside for several months and to sit down and read through as many original research papers as I could get on the subject of nutrition. I decided to cut away all the opinions and focus only on the original data because human reasoning can build up logical change of, chains of thought that smoothly direct the reader to totally incorrect conclusions with devastating results. 
In parentheses, it says, later in my book, I will give examples of such mistakes in which I myself got trapped. God, don't you just love her transparency? <clears throat> she is so authentic. It's breathtaking. I discovered that there were some substantial gaps in data, and there were numerous important foods whose qualities have never been studied. I realized that if I wanted to draw the right conclusions, I had to initiate at least some pilot studies by myself. After all, my life was already on an experiment in which I was the guinea pig. I strongly believe now more than ever that it is safer to go on raw food for two weeks and see for oneself how one feels than to read 10 books and follow their recommendations without having any idea why. Through our careful observations, we all have the ability to clearly see the results of our actions. Dear reader, with this book, I hope to inspire you to start observing which of your actions make you feel and look the healthiest, and as a result, to create your own personal plan that will work for you in the best way. You are your own best expert. Chapter two, what was missing in our raw food plan? My husband, our two youngest children, and I have been eating an only raw foods diet since January of 1994 more than 11 years. Oh, 1994. It's been 30 years now. We went on this radical diet out of complete despair when our medical doctors didn't leave us any chances to recover from our horrible illnesses. A side note, I believe I've read several years ago that the kids had incorporated some cooked foods like rice into their diet. I'm going to have to just see what's going on with them. I haven't checked in um, on their site or read about them for a while. I know that her husband went back to Russia. I don't know um, the details of that. And it's, quite frankly, none of my business. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> still, 30 years ago, they embarked on this journey, and that's very inspiring. My husband, Igor, had been constantly ill since his early childhood. By the tender age of 17, he had already survived nine surgeries. Having progressive hyperthyroidism and chronic rheumatoid arthritis, at 38, he was a total health wreck. I had to lace his shoes on rainy days because his arthritic spine would not bend. Igor's heart rate was 140 plus most of the time. His eyes were tearing on sunny days and his hands were shaking. Igor constantly felt fatigued and was in pain almost all the time. Igor's thyroid doctor told him that he would die in less than two months if he would not agree to have his thyroid gland removed. His arthritis doctor told him to prepare to spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. I was diagnosed with the same disease that took my father, arrhythmia, or an irregular heartbeat. My legs were constantly swollen from edema. I weighed 280 pounds and I was continuously gaining more. My left arm frequently became numb at night, and I was afraid that I would die and my children would become orphans. I remember always feeling tired and depressed. Our daughter, Valia, was born with asthma and allergies and would often cough heavily all through the night. Our son, Sergei, was diagnosed with juvenile type diabetes, type 1 diabetes. One day, after crying through the entire night, I decided that we had to take a different action if we wanted to get different results. That was when we started to try various healing modalities and eventually arrived at the idea of becoming raw foodists. At the time, we didn't know anything about making fancy raw dishes or even that we could dehydrate flax crackers. Nevertheless, by turning off the pilot in our stove and discontinuing all cooking, 
we were able to heal all of our incurable, life-threatening diseases. Our health was improving so quickly that in three and a half months, all four of us ran the Boulder 10K road race with the 40,000 other runners. Even Sergey's blood sugar stabilized due to his new diet and regular jogging. Since beginning to eat raw food, he has never again experienced any form of diabetic symptoms. We were greatly surprised not only by how quickly our health was restored to normal, but by how much healthier we were than ever before. We've described the detailed story of our miraculous healing in our book, Raw Family, A True Story of Awakening, which we just finished reading. After several years of being raw foodists, however, each one of us began to feel like we had reached a plateau where our healing process stopped. I'm going to read that again because I think now I've been able to shut my alarm off. I'm so sorry I had that set. I'll check that before I start a podcast in the future. After several years of being raw foodists, however, each one of us began to feel like we had reached a plateau where our healing process stopped and even somewhat began to go backwards. After approximately seven years on a completely raw diet, once in a while, more and more often, we started feeling discontent with our existing food program. I began to have a heavy feeling in my stomach after eating almost any kind of raw food, especially a salad with dressing. Because of that, I started to eat less greens and more fruits and nuts. I began to gain weight. My husband started to develop a lot of gray hair. My family members felt confused about our diet and seemed often to have the question, what should we eat? There were odd times when we felt hungry but did not desire any foods that were legal for us to eat on a typical raw food diet. Fruits, nuts, seeds, grains, or dried fruit. Salads with dressings were delicious but made us tired and sleepy. We felt trapped. I remember Igor looking inside the fridge saying over and over again, I wish I wanted some of this stuff. Such periods did not last. We blamed it all on overeating and we were able to refresh our appetites by fasts, exercise, hikes, or by working more. In my family, we strongly believe that raw food is the only way to go. And therefore, we encouraged each other to maintain our raw diet no matter what, always coming up with new tricks. Many of my friends told me about similar experiences, at which point they gave up being 100% raw and began to add cooked food back into their meals. In my family, we continued to stay on raw food due to our constant support of each other. A burning question began to grow stronger in my heart with each day. The question was, is there anything missing in our diet? The answer would come right away. Nope, nothing could be better than a raw food diet. Yet, however tiny, the unwanted signs of less than perfect health kept surfacing in minor but noticeable symptoms, such as a wart on a hand or a gray hair that brought doubts and questions about the completeness of the raw food diet in its present form. Finally, when my children complained about the increased sensitivity of their teeth, I reached a state where I couldn't think about anything besides this health puzzle. I drove everybody around me crazy with my constant discussion of what could possibly be missing. In my eager quest, I started collecting data about every single food that existed for humans. As my grandmother used to say, seek and you shall find. After many wrong guesses, I finally found the correct answer. I found one particular food group that matched all human nutritional needs, greens. The truth is, in my family, we were not eating enough greens. Moreover, we did not like them. <laughs> we knew that greens were important, but we never heard anywhere exactly how much greens we needed in our diet. 
we had only a vague recommendation to eat as much as possible. In order to find out how much greens we needed to eat, I decided to study the eating habits of chimpanzees, since they are one of the closest creatures to human beings. I tried to share this information with a writer's group. I think it's 98.6. We'll see what percentage of genes we share with chimpanzees in the coming pages. But um, there was someone in my writer's group, the original one that has a PhD in animal behavior, and she said, so what? We share DNA with a banana. And <laughs> I just thought, wow, that's really dismissive. We don't share anywhere is near near as much DNA um, with bananas as we do with chimps. But we're all on our own path. So obviously the raw food uh, journey is, you know, n- not something that she's interested in, which is fine. I don't think that, um, you know, <clears throat> not a dictator. I don't think everyone should do this. I don't think it's this, you know, end all be all I just think it is such a miracle really that she has done all this research and made it available to us and we can level up if we choose chapter three how chimpanzees eat Chimpanzees are very similar to humans. Scientists at the Chimpanzee and Human Communication Institute at Washington Central University believe that chimpanzees should be categorized as people, as a people. After closely studying the behavior of these intelligent beings, the researchers at WCU have become convinced that chimpanzees are significantly smarter than most people are aware. According to the scientists from WCU, chimpanzees have their own language and culture that humans didn't even suspect of them probably because chimpanzees do not speak. They do, however, use their own sign language that scientists have been studying closely for over three decades, which is six decades now. The researchers at WCU acknowledge new evidence indicates that the technology and the communication of the chimpanzee community meets the definition of culture. We also know that chimpanzees' cognitive capacities are very similar to our own. Both intellectually and emotionally, By any reasonable definition, chimpanzees should be categorized as a people. Most medical research institutes agree that chimpanzees are humans and humans are very alike. Unfortunately, based on this ground, they they use chimpanzees in scientific experiments. Just take a look at the following quotes from numerous medical articles. Modern people and chimpanzees share an estimated mm, 99.4% of our DNA sequence, making us more closely related to each other than than either is to any other animal species. Chimpanzees resemble humans more than any other animal. Human brains are very like chimpanzee brains. The major differences between humans and apes are not anatomical, but rather behavioral. Chimps, and these are um, cited from research, so that was uh, the percentage and the brain information these are from journal, medical journals. Chimps have the same ABO blood groupings as humans and are used for compatibility studies for tissue transplants, for hepatitis research, and for other medical studies. Non-human primates play a critical role in biomedical research of understanding treatment and prevention of important infectious diseases such as AIDS, hepatitis, and malaria, and chronic degenerative disorders of the central nervous system like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. 
The close phylogenetic relation of NHPs to humans not only opens avenues for testing the safety and efficacy of new drugs and vaccines, but also offers promise for evaluating the potential of new gene-based treatments for human infect infectious and genetic diseases. Yeah, these are all cited from, from medical journals. Non-human primates are excellent models for studying human biology and behavior because of their close phylogenetic relations to humans. Their use in biomedical research is critical to advancements in medical science, including the discovery of the RH factor and the development of the poliovirus vaccine. Their use has expanded into virtually every area of medicine. And that is uh, number seven. I wonder if chimpanzees and humans are really so closely related and studying this closeness is so critical to our health. Why don't we humans apply our studies both ways? How could it be that we put our worst human illnesses on chimpanzees, but to not learn from them? Rather than making them sick, why not make ourselves well? Why not at least try out what they eat? I went online and purchased $300 worth of books and DVDs about chimpanzees and their diet and lifestyle. I wrote a letter with my questions to the Jane Goodall University. I traveled to three big zoos that have chimpanzees and spoke to many people who feed them and take care of them every day. I discovered fascinating information about chimpanzees that totally changed my view of them. I was very impressed to find out that chimpanzees can learn to use American Sign Language. Under double-blind conditions, we have found that the chimpanzees communicate information in American Sign Language to human observers. They use signs to refer to natural language categories. Example, dog for any dog, flower for any flower, shoe for any shoe. The chimpanzees acquire and spontaneously use their signs to communicate with animals and each other about the normal course of surrounding events. They have demonstrated an ability to invent new signs or combine signs to metaphorically label a novel item. For example, calling a radish cry hurt food or referring to a watermelon as a drink fruit. In a double-blind condition, the chimpanzees can comprehend and produce novel prepositional phrases, understand vocal English words, translate words into their ASL glasses, and even transmit their signing skills to the next generation without human intervention. Their play behavior has demonstrated that they use the same types of imaginary play as humans. It has also been demonstrated that they carry on chimpanzee-to-chimpanzee -chimpanzee conversation and sign to themselves when alone. Oh, conversational research shows the chimpanzees initiate and maintain conversations in ways that are like humans. The chimpanzees can repair a conversation if there is a misunderstanding. They will also sign to themselves when alone, and we have even observed them to sign in their sleep. Mm. When I educated myself about chimpanzees, they became one of my favorite beings. Understanding their intelligent nature, I deeply deeply i feel deeply sorry for the 1500 chimps that spend their lives in tiny indoor cages in medical laboratories in the united states despite all the scientific research human health is is continuously declining many nutritionists connect human health problems with nutritional deficiencies humans have lost their natural way of eating this is why i'm so grateful that there is another species in this world that closely resembles us in particular, I was glad to know that there are thousands of chimpanzees living in Gombe, in Gombe Valley, Africa. 
The most remarkable fact is that the majority of the chimps of Gombe, as opposed to humans, have not been touched by civilization. This is a great fortune for us humans. It gives us hope to find the answers to our most vital questions. What is the human diet supposed to be? What was it originally? Understanding chimpanzees' eating habits may help us better understand human dietary needs. Please look at this chart showing the average diet of the chimpanzee in the wilderness that I created based on the data from Jane Goodall's book. <clears throat> and they show a pie chart um, with 50% fruit, um, probably 40% greens and blossoms, and then a small percent of pith, bark, and seeds, and a smaller percent of insects. As you can see, the two major food groups for chimpanzees are fruits and greens. Please do not confuse greens with root vegetables like carrots, beets, or potatoes. Also do not confuse greens with non-sweet fruits like cucumbers, tomatoes, zucchini, and bell peppers. Chip, chimps only eat root vegetables in the case of drought or famine as a fallback food. According to Jane Goodall, a world famous researcher of chimpanzees, the percentage of time that chimpanzees spend eating greens in relation to the rest of their diet varies from 25 to 50%, depending on the season. Two to 7% of their diet is pith and bark, Piths, piths are the stems and more fibrous parts of plants. When the trees are blooming in March and April, chimpanzees consume blossoms, up to 10% of their ratio. Chimpanzees do not eat very many nuts, but their diet could be up to 5% seeds. Also, particularly in November, they consume small amounts of insects and even small animals. However, Jean Goodall says this part of their diet is irregular and insignificant, as they could go months and months without consuming any animals and seem to have no ill effects. There's other research that points out that wild chimpanzees intake of insects and other animals never comprises more than 1% of their diet. As long as I can remember, chimpanzees have been depicted with a banana or an orange in their hands, which definitely misled me to the assumption that they eat only fruit. To know that greens compose almost half of their diet was a revelation for me. My research gave me a solid idea that humans are supposed to eat far more greens than I would have guessed. Let us compare the standard American diet with the diet of chimpanzees. As you can see, they look totally different. These two diets hardly have anything in common. We humans eat mostly things that chimpanzees don't eat at all, like cooked starchy foods, oils, butter, yogurt, cheese, hamburgers, etc. While most of our vegetables are roots, wild chimpanzees almost never eat root vegetables unless there's a drought and fruits and greens are unavailable. It is the intake of greens that has declined most dramatically in the human diet. And then she compares the two pie charts and, wow. <laughs> the greens is such a tiny percentage of the standard American diet. Interesting. Um, our consumption of greens has generally shrunk to the two wilted iceberg lettuce leaves on our sandwich. <laughs> Let us compare the standard American diet with an average diet of a typical raw foodist. I think that a raw food diet demonstrates a vast improvement over the regular diet. Firstly, all ingredients in a raw diet are uncooked and full of enzymes and vitamins. Thus, the raw food diet is like a revolution in comparison with the standard American diet. That explains why so many people reported that they instantly felt better on a raw diet. 
We can see that raw fooders eat a lot of fruit, especially if we keep in mind that bell peppers, cucumbers, zucchini, and tomatoes are also fruits. However, even though raw fooders typically consume noticeably more greens than people on an average mainstream diet, greens almost never constitute 45% of their food. So what do raw foodists eat in place of their missing greens? The answer is most people on a raw food diet consume large amounts of fruits, nuts, and seeds. Often they use nuts as a substitute for carbohydrates, particularly when trying to mimic cooked dishes with raw ingredients, even though nuts are 70 to 80% fat. Also, raw foodists increase their consumption of oils and avocados because the most common way of eating salads, their main staple, is to have it mixed with dressing, sauce, or guacamole. Another big quota in a typical raw diet belongs to root vegetables, mostly due to juicing. Also, roots taste sweeter than greens and thus comprise a large portion of raw salads. Considering all of these factors, when we compare the typical raw food diet with the chimpanzee diet, we can clearly see that there are two main ways to further improve our individual eating patterns, to increase our consumption of greens and to reduce our intake of nuts, seeds, and oils. For example, based on how much fruit we consume in my family, about four to five pounds per day per person, I estimate that we need to eat about two good-sized bunches of dark leafy greens per person per day. Another striking characteristic aspect of the chimpanzee eating pattern is that they never eat in the late afternoon or evening. Wow, 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 I'd forgotten this. I'm so glad I'm rereading this book with you. Uh, wow, I just sat in my cupboard for years. I don't think I have read this book, reread it in 10 years. <sighs> Let me just read this again. Another striking characteristic aspect of the chimpanzee eating pattern is that they never eat in the late afternoon or evening. Chimpanzees wake up very early. So do I, 1am <laughs> on days that I work. Um, at the first light of day, after leaving their nest, they groom each other for a few minutes and then begin searching for food. Chimpanzees have to work hard in order to get their food, climbing many trees or searching through numerous low shrubs. Most often they feed on fruit in the morning and a little bit on leaves. After about four hours, they take a break for an hour or two, playing or sleeping in the sun. <laughs> Then the chimps resume feeding, eating mostly greens until about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, after which they groom and prepare their nests for the night's sleep. This sounds like such a lovely life. <laughs> Except for maybe the grooming part. Um, in contrast, my own eating pattern is vastly different. I don't normally eat anything until noon or later, and in the evening I stock up on food. Same. I'm currently striving to stop eating after 6 p.m. While I am experiencing positive results and finally shedding some extra weight, I have to admit that restraining myself from eating late is a lot harder than I expected. I attribute this to the larger amount of stress we tend to accumulate towards the end of the day. Mm. Uh, I could devour this whole book right now with you, but I think we'll stop after chapter four. Chapter four, Green Smoothie Revolution. In my research, I noticed that chimpanzees really love greens. I remember watching chimps at the zoo and seeing how excited they became when given fresh acacia branches, young tender palm tree leaves, or kale. 
I was so inspired looking at them that I went to the nearby bushes and tried to eat acacia leaves myself. But the truth was the green leaves were not very palatable for me. And that presented another problem. Eating greens always seemed like a duty for me. I would think to myself, I have to have my greens. Some days I would cheat by juicing my greens. I would quickly drink a cup of green juice and consider myself good for a couple of days. Or I would make a delicious raw dressing and sink my greens into it. That was another way for me to enjoy greens. But I could never imagine sitting and eating two bunches of kale or spinach. Although I didn't like greens, my husband Igor simply couldn't tolerate them. When he was growing up, he was encouraged to eat mostly meat and bread, like a real Russian man. That's in quotes. <laughs> While living in Russia, we had never seen any greens in stores. Only in the summer, people could buy dill, parsley, and green onions at farmer's markets. I recall seeing lettuce only about twice each summer and considered it rare and exotic. The more I read about the nutritional contents of greens, the more I became convinced that greens were the most important food for humans. If I could only find a way to enjoy them enough to consume the optimal quantity needed to become perfectly healthy. I tried countless times to force myself to eat large amounts of greens in the form of salad or by themselves, only to discover that I was not physically able to do that. After about two cups of shredded greens, of shredded greens, I would either have heartburn or nausea. One day while reading a book on biology, I became intrigued by the amazingly hardy composition of plants. Apparently, apparently cellulose, the main const constituent of plants, has one of the strongest molecular structures on the planet. Greens possess more valuable nutrients than any other type of food, than any other food group. But all these nutrients are stored inside the cells of plants. These cells are made of tough material, probably as a means of survival for the plant, making it difficult for animals to eat. To release all the valuable nutrients from within the cells, the cell walls need to be ruptured. To rupture these sturdy cells is not easy. This is why eating greens without chewing them thoroughly would not satisfy our nutritional needs. In simple words, we need to chew our greens to a creamy consistency in order to get the benefits. In addition, in order to digest the released minerals and vitamins, hydrochloric acid in the stomach has to be very strong with a pH between one and two. These two conditions are absolutely vitally necessary for the assimilation of nutrients from greens. Obviously, when I tried to eat plain greens, I did not chew my greens well enough and possibly did not have a high enough level of hydrochloric acid in my stomach. As a result, I experienced unpleasant signs of indigestion and formed a general dislike for greens altogether. <laughs> After many decades of eating mostly heavily processed foods, modern people have lost their ability to chew normally. Our jaws have become so narrow that even after extracting our wisdom teeth, we still need to wear braces. This is, uh, these are cited from uh, medical art articles. Our jaw muscles have become too weak to thoroughly chew rough fiber, fiber. Several times I have heard recommendations from my dentist to be more gentle on my teeth and not to bite firm fruit, but rather to grate my carrots and apples. In addition to these compromising conditions, many people have lots of fillings, false or missing teeth. All of these obstacles make chewing greens uh, to the necessary consistency virtually impossible. This is why I tried to chew my greens in the Vitamix blender. Um, she has an asterisk, asterisk here. 
I would like to explain that the Vitamix is not just a simple blender like the ones you find at any department store. It's called a high-speed blender because it speed, its speeds go up to 240 miles per hour. That means that its blades don't even have to be sharp. Even if they were just dull metal sticks, they could still liquefy something as hard as, for example, blocks of wood. In order to reach such performance, the Vitamix has a 2-plus peak horsepower motor. Any simple blender will blend the tough cellulose of greens, only so long as its blades are sharp. Unfortunately, when the blades become dull, they just move around pieces of banana and the blender very quickly overheats. 11 years ago, after burning several blenders, I finally bought myself a Vitamix at the country fair. It still works like new. Same. I bought mine in 2008, so I mean 16 years. Um, yeah, it's, it still works like new. They're amazing. I, I highly recommend. I think it's the one thing. If you had to have one tool as a raw foodist, definitely the Vitamix or a Blendtec or, you know, something high speed like that. But I've never used a Blendtec. Uh, I don't think I've only used Vitamixes. <clears throat> Excuse me. I did replace the tamper once. I was making this beautiful, nice cream. It was such a beautiful batch. And the tamper broke and my nice cream was full of tamper. So I had to order another one, which was like eight bucks. Such a great investment, the Vitamix. All right. First, I blended a bunch of kale with water. I was thinking, I will just close my eyes and nose and drink it. But as soon as I opened the lid, I closed it again because I closed it again quickly because I felt queasy from the strong wheatgrass smell. The dark, almost black mixture was totally unconsumable. After some brainstorming, here, oh, sorry, sweetie, I gotta help my dog with her blanket. There you go, baby. Uh, but it's okay. Uh, that dark green, almost black mixture was totally unconsumable. But after, after some brainstorming, I added several bananas and blended it again. And that was when the magic began. I slowly and with some trepidation removed the lid and sniffed the air. And to my greatest surprise, this bright green concoction smelled very pleasant. I cautiously tasted a sip and was exhilarated. It was better than tasty, not too sweet, not too bitter. It was the most unusual taste I'd ever tried, and I could describe it in one word, freshness. In four hours, I consumed all I blended, which was one bunch of kale, four bananas, and a quart of water. I felt wonderful and made more. Triumphantly, I realized that this evening was the first time in my life that I consumed two good-sized bunches of greens in one day. Plus, I ate them without any oil or salt. And I enjoyed the whole experience. My stomach felt fine and I was happy to have achieved my goal. That was in August of 2004. The solution to my greens dilemma was so unexpectedly simple. To consume greens in this way took so little time that I naturally continued experimenting with blended greens and fruits day after day. I must admit here that the idea of blended greens was not new to me. 11 years ago, when my family was studying at the Creative Health Institute, CHI, in Michigan, we were taught about the extraordinary healing properties of energy soup, blended sprouts, avocado, and apple. This soup was invented by Dr. Ann Wigmore, the pioneer of the living foods lifestyle in the 20th century. Although we were told countless times how exceptionally beneficial energy soup was, 
Most of the guests at the Institute were not able to eat more than a couple of spoonfuls of energy soup because it was not palatable. I was very impressed with the testimonials that I'd heard from people about the benefits of energy soup. When I returned home, I desperately experimented with the energy soup, trying to improve the taste because I wanted my family to benefit from eating it. My final attempt to perfect energy soup was ended one day when I heard Valia yelling to Sergei in the backyard, run, mom's making that green mush again. <laughs> Despite all the evidence of the healing powers of energy soup, I found that unfortunately, even people who desperately needed and wanted it could not make themselves consume it regularly. I'm amazed that 11 years after being introduced to energy soup, when I had forgotten, when I'd completely forgotten all about it, I came back to the very same idea of blended greens from an entirely new direction. When I first started drinking green smoothies, I didn't mention it to anybody and did not expect anything significant to happen. Since I did not have any big health problems, I was not pursuing any dramatic changes. I just didn't want to age so noticeably. However, after about a month of erratic green smoothie drinking, two moles and a wart I had had since early childhood peeled off my body. I felt more energized than ever before and started sharing my experience with my family and friends. The next thing I noticed was that those cravings I had occasionally for heavy foods like nuts or crackers, especially in the evenings, had totally disappeared. I noticed that many of the wrinkles on my face went away and I began to hear compliments from other people about my fresh look. My nails became stronger. My vision sharpened, and I had a wonderful taste in my mouth, even upon awakening in the morning, pleasure I hadn't had since youth. My dream had come true at last. I was consuming plenty of greens every day. I began to feel lighter, and my energy increased. My taste started to change. I discovered that my body was so starved for greens that for several weeks, I lived almost entirely on green smoothies. Plain fruits and vegetables became much more desirable for me and my cravings for fatty foods declined dramatically. I stopped consuming any kind of salt altogether, even seaweed. Two weeks later, my husband and I were walking in California along a grassy trail when I suddenly began to salivate from looking at the dark green crispy branches of malva weeds growing in abundance along our path. I kept catching myself wanting to grab and eat them. I shared my observation with Igor and he listened attentively but didn't get excited. He had already noticed that I was eating differently lately. Instead of making myself a huge salad consisting of multiple chopped vegetables, a large avocado, sea salt, lots of onion and olive oil, I now chopped a bunch of lettuce with the tomato, sprinkled it with lemon juice, and enjoyed it tremendously, rolling my eyes and humming with pleasure. I did not miss my former food and felt completely satisfied eating so simply. Now I knew that the human body can learn to crave greens. There was another change that astounded me. I used to have cravings for unhealthy foods when I got tired. For example, in the past, when we were traveling and we spent the night in an airplane or after we were driving all night, I experienced severe cravings for some heavy raw foods or even some authentic Russian cooked foods from childhood that I hadn't eaten for more than a decade. These cravings were very strong and annoying. Driven by these urges, I would prepare myself some kind of dense raw food like seed cheese with crackers or stuff myself with nuts sometimes late at night. I've heard from many other people that they experienced similar patterns. Also, during previous years, when I came home late from the office, after often after 10 p.m., I enjoyed changing my focus from work to other lighter topics, either by reading a chapter from a book or by watching a nice video. 
I noticed that if I allowed myself to grab an apple or a handful of nuts, I would tend to continue grazing and couldn't ever achieve a feeling of satisfaction. Even if I used my willpower and didn't touch any food at home, I continued to feel discontent and food kept coming to mind. When I began to drink green smoothies, I noticed right away that those kinds of cravings disappeared. That was when my husband really noticed the difference in my behavior. In the evening after a hard work day, he would still crave something to eat while I was relaxed and content by just reading a book or talking. <laughs> she was becoming a chimp. <laughs> when Igor saw how happy I was in the evenings, along with the noticeable improvements in my health, he joined me in drinking green smoothies. He started to ask for a cup of that green stuff whenever I was making it. Neither Igor nor I had any illnesses, so in the beginning it was hard to tell if we were just excited or if we really felt better. But soon both Igor and I were able to testify that we experienced rejuvenation and we began to look younger. After only two months of drinking green smoothies, Igor's mustache and beard started growing blacker, making him look like he did when we first met. Igor became so enthusiastic about his youthful look that he became the green smoothie champion of my family. He would wake up early and make two or three gallons of smoothie every day, one for me, one for him, and one for Sergei and Valia to share. Both of our children enjoyed including this tasty green drink in their daily menu, even though they were already experiencing great health. They noticed still more benefits, like the ability to sleep less, more complete eliminations, stronger nails, and most of all, improvement in their teeth, which became less sensitive. One of my fears was that I would get tired of green smoothies one day, and I wouldn't want them anymore. Yet after six months of regular consumption, I was enjoying them now more than ever. Now I could imagine my life without now I couldn't imagine my life without green smoothies, as they had become 80% of my diet. Wow. In addition to smoothies, I ate flax crackers, salads, fruits, and occasionally seeds or nuts. In order to always have the opportunity to make fresh green smoothie for myself, I purchased an additional Vitamix blender for my office. Whenever friends or customers came in, they saw a big green cup next to my computer, and I treated them to a sample of my new discovery. To my great satisfaction, everybody loved it, despite their different dietary habits. Unexpectedly for me, some of my friends and coworkers started to comment on their health improvements just from the cup of green smoothie they were drinking in my office. No kidding. My web designer began to crave more raw foods as a result of rather irregular helpings of smoothies and lost 15 pounds in a couple of months. The woman from the office across the road got rid of her eczema by drinking a cup of green smoothie almost every day. Even the UPS guy liked it. Inspired by the warm reception, I wrote an article, Ode to Green Smoothie, and emailed it to all those in my internet address book. Almost instantly, I began to receive strong, positive feedback and many detailed testimonials from my friends, students, and customers. While I felt compelled to do more research, it looked like the multiple benefits of green smoothie became obvious to everybody who tried them and the number of people who were drinking green smoothie turned into a green wave growing rapidly every day. So we'll stop here today and we'll continue with chapter five. And just as I go along with each episode, reading a few more chapters, I will reevaluate, just kind of think about how far we should go in the book. Um, because again, like I said, I don't want to just give away all of her content and I... I want to con- I-, I want to encourage you to just buy this book because this is a book I think everybody should own. I really do. Um, so hopefully um, 
this will inspire you to purchase a copy for yourself. And I've given away in quite a few copies of this also. So it's probably another one of those books where you just don't hang on to it very long. You give it away and then you get another copy for yourself. Um, there are some great recipes in the back for green smoothies. Um, one of the best ones that I've ever had. Oh, what was that woman's name? Now it escapes me. I saw her speak around the same time. She writes a lot about beauty and she's also Russian. She has long, dark hair and her name completely escapes me right now. My apologies. But I saw her give a talk and she served, um, it was um, mango and greens. I think it was kale. Anyway, that was super tasty also. There might have been banana in there too. But uh, yeah, if you want to just start out with something, I highly recommend that. So you could have done a lot of things with these uh, 68 minutes. <laughs> Thank you for being here and spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. And um, if you want to reach me, you can email me, s-h-e-r-i dot m-e-s-h-a-l at gmail.com. And like I said, if someone feels very strongly that I should not be reading these and giving away her content like this, um, let me know. And I will seriously consider uh, what you have to say about it. Again, I am a, a, a fellow author, um, and uh, I know that this is, I mean, it's, it's important um, to consider uh, the effects of our choices. So also please like and follow, um, follow me. I always forget to say that at the end of an episode. So I'm getting better at that. It's really fun to see um, all of my listeners um, on the podcast. It's still mind boggling to me. Um, to see where you are all around the world, but really fun and 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 it inspires me um, that this many you know people are interested in this, uh, interested in raw food, interested in self healing, really is what uh, is my drive. And again, just thank you for for joining me for this, and we'll do chapter five very soon. Have a great day. <laughs>